Today, I want to talk about the relationship between two different concepts that might seem to be in tension. These are the concepts of evangelism and evidentialism. Now, what do I mean by evangelism here? Well, just for the sake of this video, for this context, what I mean by it is gospel proclamation without in that proclamation making an evidential case, not even the what we might call elevator version of an evidential case. So an evangelist's sermon or a missionary's statement upon first uh, speaking to a group of people where he's just getting the gospel out there or something that you might say to a person if you just had a short time to talk to him. Um, perhaps he's come forward or she's come forward to be counseled uh, after a after a service in response to an invitation, or maybe you've just met the person briefly. Uh, you're talking on an airplane or something, though you actually have quite a bit of time when you're talking on the airplane, but something like that. Or as in the case of the Philippian jailer with uh, Paul and Silas, the person just comes to you and says, what must I do to be saved in, in essence? Um, so this would include just a statement of, you know, what's needed to, you have to get right with God. You, there's a sin problem. God sent his son, Jesus. He died. He was buried. He rose again for our sins. And we need to confess our sins and follow Jesus in order to, uh, to be reconciled with God, to be right with God. Something to that effect. Just proclaiming the gospel. So that's how I'm defining evangelism for this purpose here in this discussion. And then evidentialism is a position in apologetics. It's also a position in philosophy. But in apologetics, it has to do with the idea that um, the, the Bible is not just something that we accept in a top-down fashion uh, and that we need to make a case for the truth of Christianity. And we need to be prepared to do that in order to have a good reason to believe, for example, that Jesus rose from the dead. So this would be different from presuppositionalism. It would also be different from uh, reformed epistemology as advocated by Alvin Plantinga, where you just kind of, you know, read the Bible and then you have this internal witness, the Holy Spirit, and you just accept it um, without any kind of historical case. And that's warranted in the sense of being all the warrant, basically, that that you need to have uh, what we have called, my husband and I have called elsewhere, positive epistemic status for that proposition. And evidentialism is, is opposed to that. You can perhaps see right away why it might seem that evidentialism and evangelism are at odds. And so I could see where someone who was pressing one of the other theories instead of evidentialism, could come in there and try to make trouble, in a sense, by saying, you know, the evidentialist should should oppose proclamatory statement of just the gospel in the sense of good news, uh, because it's, it's not going to include that evidential case. We, you know, we've defined it as not including that evidential case. And you, you could even, if you were taking another position, kind of try to push it to a kind of a reductio that if someone comes to you and says, what must I do to be saved? You know, I, I, I'm a sinner 
I need to get right with God, help me, that you would say, well, now, look, I'm not going to answer that question right now. Um, let's do a five-week course, and we'll start with the Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God and some of those, and we'll go through, and eventually we'll get to defending the reliability of the Gospels and, and you know, the resurrection that way. And then when we're all done with that, I'll tell you what you need to do to get right with God. Um, and, you know, spoiler I, I don't think that that is something that the evidentialist has to say. And that's where I'm going in this video. But you could try to press it because the evidentialist says, well, you need a, a case. You need an evidential case or else you're not you know, warranted, justified, rational, reasonable, whatever word you choose to use in believing that Jesus rose from the dead. So on the one hand, there can be a, a temptation just to say evidentialism must be wrong, because obviously to do that is to, is uh, seems ridiculous. Uh, another thing that someone might try to do is to say that, um, you know, you shouldn't even talk about Jesus or the gospel if, if the other person doesn't have a Bible or that a, a missionary shouldn't make a gospel proclamation to a group of people who don't have the Bible in their own language or something like that. Um, and, and, and those are also not things that follow from evidentialism. Now you'll see, if you look at the blog posts that I'm linking in the show notes, that this is a topic I've been thinking about for some years. There have been some discussions in this past week that have brought the topic again to mind, but uh, that's, that's just what's brought it to mind. And I had already been you know, thinking about it years ago before I knew that those conversations would take place. And so that's why I thought this would be a good time to make a video about it. So then the question arises, well, why doesn't that follow? And I think that sometimes the, the pull of that reductio can have the effect of causing someone who is even a staunch evidentialist to say, oh, well, I need to change my concept of what even counts as a good case. That could be another temptation. So that then you're going to say that the plain, you feel like you have to say that the plain gospel proclamation is a good case. And so that if, if someone just here's a 35-minute proclamation of how you can get right with God or a 10-minute proclamation of how you can get right with God, that must be a good evidential case. So you're sort of changing your standards. I don't think you should do that either. How do we answer that while being consistent as if you're an evidentialist in apologetics? How would I answer that as an evidentialist in apologetics and, and one with some fairly high standards so that I've been saying, you know, you can't defend the resurrection uh, without using the Gospels to any significant degree of uh, credibility? Well, I think the key lies in disambiguating a word, and that's just something that analytic philosophers love to do is to say, hey, let's distinguish between these two meanings. In this case, they're two wildly, widely different meanings. And they're just coming from different contexts. The one meaning is theology and the other meaning is epistemology. The word in question is justified or any of its cognates justification and so forth. Uh, so in the theological sense, what is it to be justified? 
Well, of course, theologians debate endlessly Protestant versus Catholic, Calvinist versus Arminius, Arminian versus Molinist and so forth. But in broad terms, it's to be right with God. Uh, a Protestant would put this in terms of having the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, being uh, in right standing with God, having your sins forgiven, being saved, being on the way to heaven, those kinds of theological categories. That's the theological meaning. Now, I'm going to move to the philosophical or epistemological meaning, and I just want to say don't tune me out here if you are not a philosopher or a a geek about philosophy matters. Don't say, oh, well, I don't care about that. I'm just an ordinary person. Actually, you do care about that. Every reasonable person in this world cares about epistemological matters and uh, justification in this sense. If you have ever believed that someone was wrongly convicted of a crime and that the jury was biased and that the case wasn't strong enough, you're doing epistemology in essence, informal epistemology. If you, on the other hand, have ever said that you are a victim of a crime and someone should have believed you because you were a credible witness and they didn't believe you, you're doing epistemology. And of course, in endless, endless contexts outside of the criminal context as well, where you're saying, well, you know, that's that's not a very good argument or oh, that, that, that just doesn't follow at all, or wow, that's a really strong argument. Why can't people see that? You're doing epistemology. So stay with me here. This is actually an important sense of the word. So in that sense, justification has to do with what I called before epistemic status, positive epistemic status, when a person is rational, reasonable, and so forth to believe a proposition. And you can see right away that these just aren't the same thing. It seems like they ought to have some kind of connection, but they're not, they're, they are in fact different meanings of that word coming from different contexts. So how does this help? Well, I think that evidentialists should strongly assert and even embrace the idea that there is nothing about theological justification that requires, in like the eyes of God, requires epistemological justification. That is to say, to be very blunt, even if a person is not being fully rational in accepting the proposition that Jesus came, died, and rose again, and that person confesses with his mouth the Lord Jesus and believes in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, that person can still receive justification before God. There's nothing in the Bible that rules this out, and there's nothing in evidentialism that rules this out. This possibility that a person could be, uh, let's just say, maybe credulous in a sense. You know, maybe he just looks at the person who talks to him, and he just he he likes that person. That person seems trustworthy, and um, maybe it should occur to him that the, someone might have been telling him something completely different and uh, looked just as trustworthy or seemed just as trustworthy, but that doesn't occur to him, okay? Uh, it, I think it will occur to him eventually, by the way, uh, if he's an adult at least and not living in a cave. So, um, but maybe, maybe the person is accepting it somewhat too quickly in that evidential sense, but feels 
his own sin. And by the way, knowing your own sin, I think you could be fully justified epistemically because that's a matter of introspection and applying categories that, uh, as the Apostle Paul says, the law written on the heart to your own actions. But as far as accepting that this is the solution for it, you know, maybe the person is uh, trusting this person a little too much in the sense of that for all he can tell, the person might be wrong about the solution. But that doesn't mean that he's not justified before God. That doesn't mean that God doesn't accept that. And I think that's a very important insight. So if someone says, well, I think God accepts that. If someone just, you know, comes down the aisle or comes to you and says, what must I do to be saved? And you give him the gospel and he, he says, great, you know, what, what do I do? And he, he, he prays and asks for forgiveness of sins. The person is right with God. If someone brings that up as an argument that, you know, we don't need such a strong case for uh, now, of course, we've shifted to having a good case, having an epistemically justifying case and being uh, epistemically justified, even if he doesn't use that word. Uh, no, that doesn't follow. OK, the two are different things. And it is the divine humility, in a sense, to say, great, you know, however you've come is however you've come. And I think we should remember, too, that God is outside of time and that God's dealings with that that soul are not, you know, ending that day. OK, and everyone, when they die, is going to know the truth of these things, whether they've accepted them or rejected them and so forth. But there are practical implications for evangelism from evidentialism. It's just that these practical implications are not the kind of extreme implications that I put up as a, an attempted reductio a few minutes ago. And they don't require us to condemn evangelistic proclamation if we're evidentialists. So let's see what some of those practical implications are. Well, first of all, you you should really try to get that person a Bible as, as soon as possible. And that is, especially if the Bible already exists in that person's language, you know, get him, get him a copy of it. It's important to his being able to know doctrine. And, and I think that the um, Protestant Reformation had this right, that it's important for people to be able to have the Bible in a language that they themselves can understand. So, you know, get on that. That's that's relevant because otherwise he's in this, this this sort of baby Christian situation and he doesn't have enough of an opportunity to grow. Second of all, discipleship. You don't stop there. Like, okay, now you've prayed. Now here's a three by five card with Romans Road on it. Go out and convert other people. You don't you don't do that. That would be a bad idea. This person needs to grow. Now, of course, he's going to be enthusiastic. He's going to talk to people and that's fine. But everybody involved needs to be told there's a lot more that you need to know. And there's if, if he has accepted Christ after a brief presentation like that, he needs to be fortified and stabilized. And that's going to include apologetics. It needs to, you know, that, that that course needs to take place and that course needs to include apologetics and good evidential arguments. 
Uh, thirdly, never press someone for a decision. I think this is a really important practical out, outworking of evidentialism. Never say to someone as an individual, come on, come on, come on, you know, hurry up, you need to get right with God. Now, a, a possible exception would be an end of life situation where the person has had, you know, plenty of opportunity to know the case. Maybe you've made the case to the person before or something like that. And you, and you say, you know, so-and-so, you're, you're dying. Do you want to get right with God? You know, you, you at least present that possibility to them. But I think we need to be really careful, and it's a really delicate matter about pressing somebody, especially when we've just met the person, okay, so that the the movement towards swiftly um, accepting without an evidential case should ideally come from the person himself. And it's that's, I think, partly important because you don't know what other preparation God has done with that person. You don't know what other evidence that person has unless you, you know, question and interrogate him for the existence of God or for the truth of Christianity. So people sometimes are better prepared, even epistemologically, than we might realize. But it's we want to be really careful not to be pressing in, uh, in a sense, you know, coercing or manipulating in any way people into a swift decision when we know for a fact that all we've given them is a proclamation. Another practical outcome has to do with Bible translation. Groups like Wycliffe and other groups are very much in the right in trying to translate the Bible into the languages of those people. And it's, they, they, we need to be out there doing that. So if, if someone goes as a missionary to a people group that is previously unreached and proclaims the gospel, I would say he should even be trying to translate portions of it kind of on his feet as part of discipling those people. Uh, if we don't, if they don't have, you know, the whole New Testament or whatever translated yet, he should be giving them as part of discipleship, uh, evidential arguments. I, I think he should be giving them undesigned coincidences and translating, you know, portions at least, uh, even in a rough and ready fashion in order to, um, show them how the evidences work, at which point they're they're only relying on him for the translation, but that kind of trivializes any idea of doing without the Bible. I mean, anyone who doesn't uh, read the original languages is relying on someone for the translation, but that doesn't mean he's doing without the Bible. So you should be trying to give those people the Bible in their own language as, as much as you can and as quickly as you can. Um, so I think these are all really important. And the final one, Practically, I would say that's related to the rest is humility. Now, I I have felt this sense of being humbled as a parent. And I think those of you who are parents um, and your kids ask you questions when they're really little and they just believe you, uh, you know, you realize, man, I could, I could really mess with their heads, you know. And it's actually, I think, epistemologically legitimate for little kids because, you know, they don't realize how many other parents there are out there who say completely contradictory things. So they they actually are in a different epistemic context. But the point is, it's very humbling. It's very humbling. I've, I've been told by missionaries to uh, Papua New Guinea that the Jehovah's Witnesses are out there working in and making converts in Papua New Guinea. So when you come 
to a person or a group and they believe you and they accept Orthodox Christianity, something going on in your head saying, wow, you know, if, if I were a, a winsome, likable, sincere Jehovah's Witnesses missionary, they might have accepted that instead. And it's just in the providence of God that I, I came to them first. And moving quickly, that, that humility and that recognition that you've been trusted to an, an overwhelming extent, maybe partly because of uh, this person's lack of exposure to alternative viewpoints, should cause you to want to strengthen them to meet those alternative viewpoints as quickly as possible in that discipleship process. So these, these are all related. I remember once being in a women's Bible study and all of us there, as far as I knew, had been Christians for some time. But one of the ladies, and I think it was Jehovah's Witnesses, it's been 20 years now, so I might be misremembering, but she had had some uh, come to her door from one of these, I will call it cults, and I think it was Jehovah's Witnesses, and brought it up to the rest of us. And, and she said, aren't they Christians? Aren't they Christians just like us? Like she thought it was just another denomination within the wider realm of Orthodox Christianity. And all the rest of us in the Bible study were saying, no, 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 and trying to explain. But she had gotten that far without knowing. So um, there's a lot of that, and that needs to be corrected. But that doesn't mean she wasn't right with God or going to heaven just because she did not know that. So I think that this distinction can really help. And I think it can enable us to think it through ahead of time. Um, and, and I know not everybody is interested in these discussions about apologetics or about evangelism and how it should take place. But I also think that if you don't go into those discussions and yet you are sort of in the, the apologetics community, you can be sort of blindsided by an argument that is insufficient. And then someone says, well, what about what about a missionary? What about evangelism? Are you condemning that? And I think it's good to have thought it through and have a, a response to that that is both practically reasonable and also intellectually consistent. I think that's important. So that's what I'm trying to give you here today. Please like and subscribe and hit the bell for notifications and come back next time to the Lydia McGrew YouTube channel.